Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. My name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 125 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 125, um, Scott and I will be talking about Cartesian grid theory. No, not not really. I mean, sort of. We'll, we're going to start there as a way to talk about a relationship between two, between two different things in quizzing, and then we'll just kind of see where it goes. I'm going to sort of speak in high geek, and Scott is going to translate, because apparently I'm not able to translate myself into normal speak. So uh, we'll talk about that. And we're going to dig into theories around how to merge different sets of materials together. So like if you were going to have, let's say, an international open championship meet with programs, different kinds of programs that use different materials, how would you be able to merge those together and actually make a fair competition and the pros and cons of doing so and the trade-offs in all of that kind of theory. And then we're going to spend most of our time, probably most of our time, talking about an idea around, well, if you're going to design a new thing, an activity, a sport, whatever it happens to be, how wide or narrow do you want to build the appeal of the new thing to maximize whatever it is that you want to maximize? So, you know, let's assume participation is a something that you want to optimize for. Okay, well, how wide or narrow do you want to build the appeal of a thing to be able to maximize for that property and for that outcome? All right, so, but before we get into all of those topics, um, I want to, well, I guess it's an announcement um, of, of sorts. I, I in, on the podcast, we've been talking about this concept of the ages of quizzing for a while. Uh, the first age of quizzing being uh, the Youth for Christ movement uh, starting in the late 40s, really gaining steam in the 50s and running through the 60s and where uh, they would have Youth for Christ retreats. And uh, one of the major features of those retreats or a major feature of those uh, retreats was Bible quizzing. And that was where Bible quizzing was born and it grew up. But then waned in the latter 60s and ultimately with the reorganization of YFC uh, it ultimately was dropped and that's where we had the second age of quizzing uh, start up Uh, mostly actually almost entirely denominational uh, with a few exceptions world being one of them but I would say world was really sort of a call it a age 2.5 I guess it was a response to trying to get the denominations to work together uh, and had uh, some worthy goals therein. But uh, so the second age of quizzing spawned uh, right around the 70s, uh, latter 60s, 70s, sometimes in the 80s, depends upon which uh, denomination you're talking about. And that grew uh, up until its sort of apex point in the 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, very early 2000s. It kind of, again, depends upon which program you're talking about. And then that slowly declined, and then what Scott and I have been talking about last few episodes or so has has been this idea of what would a third age of quizzing look like uh, that was broad, inclusive, non-denominational, and really optimized for including participation. So that's been going on, lots of back-channel conversations with lots lots of different folks, and I am excited to announce, uh, I guess this is an announcement then, I am excited to announce that in early July, there will be an International Open Championship, an IOC, if you want to use the acronym, for the first ever 
quiz meat of this third age of quizzing. So it's going to be very broad interprogram, huge, awesome, epic, all the various words related to how cool it's going to be. Um, and exactly when it's going to be, I'm not sure. Probably the first couple of weeks of July, somewhere in there, it's going to be probably over the course of about three-ish days. Uh, exactly lo the location is TBD. It's going to be within a reasonably not terrible drive of some major airport, probably within the United States. Again, all of this is TBD. Um, and we are in the early stages of putting this uh, stuff together, but that's in on the docket. We've got some commitments from various different programs and sub-programs and divisions and, and districts within programs that they want to send teams and are excited to send teams. And so that's really cool. And uh, just this last meet in P&W, uh, it was at Lighthouse a little over a week ago, a week and a day ago or something like that, and P&W voted... Uh, at that last meet, it was the leadership of PNW. So essentially, all the coaches um, and all the churches were, uh, represented there. Uh, the PNW leadership voted unanimously that we are going to send teams, or at least some number of teams. Not sure exactly, but we will we will represent we will represent at IOC. We will have at least one, and probably more than one team represented at the International Open Championship meet in early July. Now, doing so does have some implications. Uh, one of those implications is that we ultimately decided that we will not be attending the standard uh, international Bible quizzing meet, the IBQ, uh, of which Scott and I talk about frequently. Uh, and this is due to a couple of factors, or actually multiple factors, but two in particular. Uh, cost is a big factor, and then the time and the focus uh, is also another factor we want to be able to focus on IOC uh, and not have that be distracted from with IBQ because we see IOC as a you know future for where quizzing can go. So we're very excited about that. So obviously this is you know a, a small deal for in terms of number of quizzers impacted because we're really only talking about maybe the top five or top ten quizzers in uh, PNW that are impacted by this sort of decision. Uh, potentially it could be a very big decision long-term, I think, for the health of, of Quizzingdom. And so I'm excited about that. But uh, in terms of the details, there are scant details right now. So, uh, you know, just bear with us over the next few weeks and months. Uh, we're going to have more details put together. Uh, I've got a, a, a task force assembled of folks who are going to invest a fairly non-trivial amount of time over the next few weeks and months to uh, put this together. And uh, as soon as details are available, we will announce them in a variety of forms, uh, certainly on this podcast, but we'll talk about them in other places as well. If you are interested in learning more, uh, feel free to email us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you for any reason, this or others, and our email address is iq at cbqz.org. But uh, yeah, stand by for more announcements there. All right. So uh, yeah, Scott, any thoughts about IOC before we move on? Not really. It kind of seems like a, what's the word? What's that, that novel? It's not brand new age, a whole new world. No, that's a Aladdin brave new world. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Sounds like a, bra a brave new world. It hopefully, hopefully a positive brave new world rather than a negative brave new world. But yeah, it's, um, it could be very interesting. We've got to be careful, uh, 
that we don't design something uh, crazy, but uh, we're definitely, everybody involved in the task force is focused on trying to make this a very excellent, uh, engaging uh, experience for everybody, uh, quizzers most especially, but really everybody uh, involved as well. All right, well, so let's move on to Cartesian grid theory. So forgive the geek speak here. It's apparently the only way I know how to how to talk today. But I'm going to describe a theory and or, well, I mean, it's not really a theory. I'm going to describe a way of thinking about quizzing uh, from a design perspective. And then Scott is going to attempt to translate my geek into normal speak. And then we'll kind of dig into it and see kind of where this theory goes. So bear with me here uh, with the geekdom. But so imagine a Cartesian grid, but only take the positive quartile of that Cartesian grid. So, you know, you've got an X and an Y, you got an origin point at zero, zero, X goes in one direction, Y goes in the other direction, and off you go, you've got this positive quartile of this Cartesian grid. And imagine investment as one of the axes, put that on the X axis, right? Uh, and when I say investment, I'm talking about, this is about the amount of material memorized, the degree to which it's memorized, the quality of the memorization, um, and any sort of associated study. So it's really kind of the entire, and, and also practice is, is part of the investment as well, right? So all of that and more is part of the investment strategy is, and, and thinking through strategies and playtesting strategies, that's also an investment. But think of all of the stuff that can be thought of as investment along the x-axis, and then reward is on the y-axis. Now, what is reward? At its simple, at, at its simplest, I think you could describe reward as the points that are scored. So, you know, the more you score on points, the the more the reward you're getting. But it's I mean, there is something a little bit less objective in the reward as well. So, for example, if you can, you know, push a reward higher based on any sort of factors, I, I don't know. There's, 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 I'm, I'm getting off topic here, but think of reward, I guess. Let's start with just points scored and we can dive into kind of, kind of the qualities uh, and quantities thereof in a, at, at a later time. So I would say given this sort of X and Y, you could plot on this grid experiences of quizzers, right? Uh, and and you could, and this, this is not necessarily going to be a single data point per quizzer for all of their experience in quizzing, but rather each meet or even each quiz could be a data point for a quizzer. And it's more likely probably going to be on a quiz by quiz meet by quiz meet basis. The amount of investment uh, equals some amount of reward for a given quizzer. And if you plot all of these things on this Cartesian grid, you ultimately... I suspect would see, if you could do this objectively, you would see a high correlation between investment and reward in the systems of Bible quizzing, whether that's uh, CMA, Free Methodist, Nazarene, what have you. There is a some amount of correlation and likely high correlation between this investment concept and reward concept. And I think that's by design because the better we have that correlation, the more we're incentivizing the investment, which is what we want the programs to do. We want the programs to incentivize uh, uh, memorization and therefore incentivizing investment and therefore off to the races we go, right? So 
imagine then on this grid, if you take this scatter plot, there's a high correlation. You could theoretically plot a line that represents this correlation. And it's not linear. It's not a straight line. It is going to bend and shape a little bit as it moves from, let's say, near the origin point of zero, zero off up and to the right, let's say, right? But for the time being, let's just pretend that the line is linear, like it's just straight line, right? The so that's that's the theory. Um, actually, let me pause there and Scott jump in here. Is there anything that you want to translate before I move on? I don't think so. I mean, your Cartesian grid. I, I rarely hear um, a graph described that way, but it's just two axes, right? That's just describing the relationship between um, those axes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, we've got the, the, the point where the axes meet is the origin, um, zero, zero. And we're just going to be talking about positive numbers. So up and to the right is all that exists here. So, okay. So the line, let's say we were going to draw a, a, this line that I'm talking about, this, this correlation. And, and I, I am admitting to you that it's not really a line. It's more of a scatter plot. And if you were going to take, say, the average of the scatter plot, it's not linear. It probably is shaped somewhat logarithmically on one end, um, maybe two ends. I'm not really sure. Maybe it's a, a, a sort of flattened out S shape uh, to, to some degree. But all that aside, let's just pretend for now that it is a linear relationship and it's just a, a line, right? One of the things that I've come to realize, and, and, you know, maybe several of you, most of you out there are going to say, duh, and you've known this for a while, but I've come to realize that this line doesn't go down to the origin point. Like it doesn't connect to zero, zero. You would expect in most cases, a linear relationship to start at zero, zero and cascade off in at some slope up into the right to infinity. Right. But that's not the case in quizzing. Ultimately, there is a minimal, there is a minimum and there is a maximum on this line. And right, there is a point at which, um, but before we go into that, the line does, I believe, generally flow up and to the right from its minimum to its maximum. In other words, the more you invest, the more reward you get, right? Um, but how those two things relate to each other is the shape of this line and the, the, let's call it the slope of the line because we're just agreeing to uh you know a willful suspension of disbelief that the line is linear even though it's not so given that there is a slope of this line that represents that relationship but there's a minimum it doesn't go down to zero zero and what are the implications of that the implica one of the implications of that is that to begin to get anything out of quizzing, to begin to get any kind of reward out of quizzing, you must have a minimum investment in quizzing. And what I'm talking about is, is the current a uh, second age, uh, our current way of doing quizzing. You ha there is a, there is a minimum required investment of everyone before they can begin to ex uh, recoup a theoretical reward from quizzing in terms of the competitional aspect. Now, certainly that's not necessarily true for the, uh, the spiritual aspect or the fellowship aspect, the friendship aspect, all of those things are, you know, icing on the cake and very useful and practical and good things. But in terms of the, the, in terms of quizzing itself, the rewards don't start 
at the origin, they start after a minimum investment. Um, so Scott, translations, questions, thoughts? Um, and when you see rewards, what sorts of, what, what, what are you thinking of? Yeah. And I, I wasn't, I I wasn't super specific there at its basic level. You can think of it as points scored, right? So I can, I jump, I get to answer a question. I get called correct. I earn points. I put those points on the board. That's a, that experience is a reward. Gotcha. Um, you wouldn't say it's the only reward. No, it's certainly not, right? So I think participation in quizzing gives you, like we were just talking about, like like there's the fellowship aspect, the spiritual aspect of it, the friendship aspect of it. There's a lot of other things that don't re- that are that are gains of participation that don't that aren't part of this reward structure that I'm talking about. Right, right. Because I cherry picked a, a year from the early 2000s, and roughly a third of the quizzers averaged. Um, you know, basically a zero for the entire year. And, you know, we're not saying that there was no reward for those third of quizzers within PNW. There was no value. We're not saying there was no value for those quizzers. I will say there was no reward for those quizzers, right? There was no score, like scoring competitive reward. Yeah, there was no scoring rewarded for them. There was no incentive given to them for any investment uh, made in. So if for, for, for those third, right, this another way to think of it is um, if you invested absolutely zero, right, and you showed up to a meet, you would still have all of these other good things happen, um, like, you know, the spiritual connectiveness, the fellowship, the friendships building, all of that good stuff that, that is prized and should be prized, right, because it's a, it's a valuable thing. Those values gained would be given, given, would be accrued by a a quizzer who invested absolutely zero, right? But what I'm talking about reward is when you're rewarded for some amount of investment, right? Whether, uh, even if it's the tiniest amount of investment, there is some amount of reward, let's say, connected to that. Those Those things are purely, I think, score and experiential based. And I'm not suggesting that the score is the only marker of that, right? So it's not like, well, somebody who scored a perfect 90 got more reward out of the program than, than somebody who averaged an 85 or an 80 or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about at all, but rather that it is a high correlation to the value that comes out of it, right? That there was a scoring opportunity and the, the experience of scoring was the incentive, the juice, right? For the investment that the, that the quizzer put in. I think that that's really interesting and I agree, but I think your wording matters so much. Oh, it does. Where you're not saying that it is the exact indication of how much reward somebody got, but it is a very, very good proxy. Yeah, me. I wouldn't put two varies on there. I would. I would call it a single very good proxy. Um, how's that? But yeah, it, it's it's a it's a it's a good proxy for reward, but it's not the entire thing. Um, so there is. Let's say that there is high correlation between the points scored and the totality of the reward earned by the quizzer, but it's not a perfectly correlated number. Sure. Okay. Um, any other translations questions? Not yet. Okay. So then the realization here is, so that's on the minimum side, right? Like, and, and 
just to restate real quickly, essentially a quizzer can show up to a meet having memorized absolutely nothing, having invested absolutely nothing. They get all kinds of value out of being at the, the meet and even just sitting on stage, but they don't get any reward, right? A quizzer who has memorized a very small amount, right? Um, uh, something, it's almost like there's a, a quantum state, like you have to get up to a certain quantum energy before you go from zero to some amount of non-zero reward. So if I go in and I memorized half of one verse a little bit, or I read one chapter, but I didn't really memorize anything, have I invested? Well, yes, I've invested. I haven't invested very much, but I've invested something above zero. But my practical reward at that meet is very likely going to be exactly the same as somebody who invested zero, right? I have to memorize up to, I have to basically make a quantum leap to go from zero, zero to some particular amount invested before I can start expecting to see rewards coming back for that investment, right? And ultimately, this is a, this is sort of a geeky way to explain the phenomenon I think we've talked about before, where to encourage people who are unquizzed to get involved in quizzing to actually memorize, you essentially have to, you have a chicken and egg problem, right? You have to, the, the best way to incentivize somebody or the best way for somebody to be incentivized is to experience quizzing and experience getting a question correct and the, the juice behind that, right? And then take that back and use that as the incentive for investing, which then gives them greater reward, which then gives them more rationale for investing. And the cycle begins and off to the races we go, right? The problem is it requires a, an initial push to kind of go from zero to that initial investment to then be able to get the engine running, uh, as it were. So that's sort of at the minimum end. But then there's a maximum end of this line as well, right? So I'm only going to be talking about, say, uh, P&W CMA experiences here. Uh, different programs are going to be slightly different, but they're all very similar in the second age of quizzing, where generally speaking, you're talking about, um, if you get a question correct, you get 20 points and you quiz out after four questions. And if you quiz out without error, you get a plus 10. So your max is 90. There is nothing, there is no way to earn more points beyond that 90, right? Uh, so there is a theoretical end point for this chart where if you add more investment, you will not see any rewards above the maximum reward at 90. Um, so Scott, thoughts on this one? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a good way to break it down because at least in district quizzing, there is a good number of quizzers who are going to quiz out in the vast majority of their quizzes. And it is probably the case that there is no scoring incentive for them to work harder during the district. And I think most people have heard quizzers talk about it, right? Where um, they don't have to work much harder than they're expecting to lock down an international's top five spot. And then once the district year is concluded, their preparation really, really goes to a different level because now the reward is different right. um, and requires greater preparation that um, is not required during the year. And thus, um, the extra work is rarely done, which I think kind of clearly shows the incentives at, at work. 
right? Like, it's very rare that someone is spending a ton of time on quiz study for no scoring competitive incentive. Right. And I mean, I do want to address something that you raised there, which is I mean, fundamentally very, very important. Competition matters tremendously when we're trying to map out the practical implementation, implementation, the practical uh, expression of this theory is highly influenced, highly, highly influenced by the, the, the level of competition, right? So if you're talking about, say, a regional meet versus a district meet versus, say, a national or an international meet, or, um, you know, a, a, an invitational, a multi-district invitational meet, the level of the competition matters tremendously in terms of, like, how tighter you can get and the rewards that you're going to get there, right? And so ultimately what we're talking about here is not so much the competitional aspects of it, but actually factoring that out and looking at it purely from a design perspective, a, a rules theory perspective, and kind of an inside quizzing, you know, perspective, sans competition, right? So the reality is, yeah, competition, higher levels of competition will always spark more incentive to memorize better, a deeper, right? Because the rewards are connected with higher levels of study, right? And so you have to, you know, push the boundaries more and more to be able to accrue anything close to the same kind of rewards that you would expect at the district level. So ultimately, the theory being here is at the district level, ultimately where the vast majority of the benefits and the values of quizzing are are on display. And, and so like when we talk about quizzing as a ministry, uh, the outcome of that ministry is most valuable at the district level. There is value certainly at the church level. There is, there is tremendous value at the international level, absolutely. But the greatest ministerial value net-net uh, comes from the from a, a typical district, right? Now, this is going to be highly variant based on the district itself, right? So for smaller districts, that's going to be a little bit uh, less the case. With larger districts, it'll be swing the other direction in, in some degrees. But generally speaking, at the district level, that's where you're going to see the most value uh, come out of the quizzing. Just, I think, mostly because you have the most number of meets at the district level. And so, as a result, the, the most number of quizzers, the most number of meets, means the most um, uh, impactful part of the ministry happens at the district level. So, when you're talking about district level, then... Even with the competitional aspect being there, and perhaps because of that level of competitional aspect, this line segment is a line segment. It's not an infinite linear line. It's a it has a minimum, a minimum and a maximum, right? And so I would make the argument that while this is true and not necessarily the worst thing in the world, it is suboptimal for two reasons. Number one, there is a cap to the investment at the district level. Uh but beyond which more investment is not rewarded and therefore quizzers generally won't go that go deeper right there is also a minimum at which point to you, quizzers uh have to sort of do this quantum leap to go from zero to a certain level before they get the spark to really engage with the program right and what i'd like to do from from a third age design perspective is 
what are ways that we can actually expand both directions, right? So on one end of the spectrum, the minimum end of the spectrum, I'd like to be able to ex expand that line all the way down to the origin, um, all the way down to zero, zero, to basically say, can a quizzer, and, and of course they're, they would be a non-quizzer at this point, but can somebody quite literally walk off the street and go up onto the platform, get registered for a meet, and with five minutes of instruction on here's how this works, they can actually have some kind of meaningful, although extremely tiny, experience that is tied to a, a point scored reward, right? To get them engaged and get at least some non-zero reward to get that reward investment engine sparked up. I'd like to be able to get that line down to zero, zero. And we've talked about this in the third age uh, stuff before around having open book quizzing or the option of open book quizzing where a, a quizzer can, if they aren't familiar with a, a verse, they can call open book reference uh, materials to be able to answer the verse. They only get a single point out of it or they get some very small uh, value, scoring value out of it, but the value is non-zero, right? And so... The beauty of this is at the district levels, uh, if you've got, let's say, three teams that are all filled, let's say you're, you're you know, it's late on a Saturday and um, uh, you're in consolation quizzes and there you, you can occasionally see three teams where there's really only like one or two people on the stage who've done any level of memorization. And so the quiz ends up with a whole bunch of no jumps, right? And that can be a little bit boring and demotivational and, and not so great. So imagine an open book scenario where literally anybody on stage could get some points. Now, not a lot of points, but they can get more than zero, right? And so they're, they're engaged in the process to some degree, and hopefully that sparks getting greater engaged over time later. Now, on the upper end of the spectrum, I think we can expand that spectrum. We can't take it to infinity uh, because... We, you know, we, we're going to be quizzing with a finite number of, of questions or queries in a given quiz, but we can, I think, expand it a lot further. So instead of capping your points at a 90 or, you know, if, if we absorb, you know, Griffin's mantra of death to zeros, let's just call it a nine. So instead of saying you, you're the maximum you can possibly get if you do everything perfectly is a nine to instead say, well, wait a minute, what if you can extend that? much, much higher. What if you could potentially earn as many as five, six, or seven points for a single question if you do everything that's possible for that question? So uh, deciding to answer verbatim instead of syn uh, synonymously, uh, deciding to or electing to provide a, a reference, um, uh, you know, these sorts of things. Uh, you can extend your... Uh, point values accrued way beyond the standard, let's say two or potentially three, if you're getting your fourth question and bring it much, much higher. And so by doing that, I think, and then making that long tail sort of logarithmically fall off, but continue indefinitely, or at least as far as we can within reason, that expands the ability of people at the district level to memorize, they, it expands their incentive to invest ever more at the district level because 
their investment will always have some non-zero reward connected to that investment. So first off, I think it's very, very interesting um, because it makes sense. I think it makes sense to expand both the lower end and the higher end where it's easier to get some small non-zero amount of points, but there's also greater opportunity to get points above the current maximum. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to think through the implications. I think one of the implications would be um, a much wider spread in both team scores and individual scores. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's absolutely the case. And I think you would almost, it would almost need to be a required expectation uh, of any system, regardless of design. Like if you were going to expand that, you would need to have a wider range um, or at least fractional values within a uh, within a set range what do you mean fractional values well so like instead of saying you can earn let's say one point per question so uh instead of saying you can get between zero and four points uh integers you would you would, you would instead say well you can get between zero and four float right so you could potentially earn you know 2.71 points or something like that now granted i hate this notion i i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to have fractional points um just because it's a certain level of cognitive overload that I don't think we necessarily want to get into. But the idea being that either you have a range of zero to four with fractional points, or you you extend that range from zero to four to zero to 40 or 400 or some, some very high number. Oh, I, see, I see what you're saying. Um, you want more more possibilities of fragmentation, good fragmentation. And so you either provide more discrete points within a current system or just widen the point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I think that that's, I mean, I think it's fine. It would be a better indication of ability. Um, do you, so I'm wondering if you think that that could be bad, but it's making me think of a common thing that we do in statistics that throws away information, which is, I refer to it as bucketizing. So, Imagine a very big bucket where I say you're either in the over 50 years old bucket or the under 50 years old bucket. Um, two buckets. Well, it throws away the information because maybe two people are 51 and 49 or maybe they're 99 and one years old. And you throw away that information when you create these. And our current system of scoring is creating some amount of bucket, right? On purpose. We we limit quiz outs to four in a quiz because we don't want one quizzer or a few quizzers to monopolize all the questions. But we are creating a a bucket by giving them a ceiling on what they can score, which means that um, the difference between a quizzer averaging an 85 and a 75 may not actually be the same difference as um, quizzers averaging a 75 and a 65 right? Or a 55 and a 45, even though it's 10 points each time, or even if you design the same percentage difference, um, those don't necessarily mean the same thing um, because of the way that we are providing these ceilings on scoring. We're in a system where each question had a couple different components of difficulty. Um, it would be very, it would be way more telling when you see a quizzer averaging like a 23, no, a quizzer averaging a, a 14, um, being first for the year. And then the quizzer who's third might be averaging an eight or, you know, something way, way, way lower um, than in the current world where translating to our current world, 140 to 80, you know, it would seem like a huge difference where usually the difference between one and two, two and three is a, a percentage point at most. 
not a percentage point, a, a average point um, between zero and 90. Do you think that that could, there could be weirdness, right? Like one team wins 340 to 20. Yeah, no, I think way more common. I think that's definitely going to be way more common. I think it's going to be way more common at the individual level, right? So you're going to see quizzers. Uh, let's say, well, let's let's translate from A2 to A3 speak here. So in A3 speak, you'll have quizzers who will score uh, two, three, four points in a quiz and quizzers who will be scoring 14, right? 13, 14, maybe even 15 points a quiz, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so th- there's, a, there's a huge range there, but every point actually counts for something, right? On, in, a, in a quiz. So, t- but going to your, and, and so is that going to be weird? Yes, it's definitely going to be weird in the sense that that's different than what we experience now. I don't think it's weird bad, right? Um, I think it's potentially weird good because it incentivizes uh, more uh, folks to invest more without causing anyone to not have an opportunity to get questions, right? So the idea being that like, yeah, if you if you go in there, let's say I go in there, I'm a either a rookie quizzer or I'm, I've only been doing it for a couple of years and I've really only got about half the material memorized and I don't have it really word perfect, but I have it reasonably well memorized. The idea that somebody like Scott Peterson coming in there, who's got every verse memorized word perfect with references, like I would expect, like it seems reasonable for me to expect that Scott will more than double my score, right? Because he has more than double the 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 material memorized, right? Um, whereas in our current universe, that is not the case. Um, it is now it's very likely that over the course of a full meet, Scott will score better than Griffin, right? Um, as you know, God intended. But the difference between our scores is going to be potentially fairly. It's not going to be that massive, right? So, like, let's say Scott uh, Scott averages out like a an eighty five for the meet. Um, I might average uh, 40 or 50, right? Um, that's, I, I don't know that that's really, and it's sort of, we have this weird crunch of scores when you get between where I was scoring and where Scott was scoring. And I'd like to actually reward and expand that range rather than contract the range. But to your to your earlier point, you made a point about bucketizing. So I don't think we necessarily bucketize in quizzing in terms of individual scores we definitely bucketize when it comes to team scoring um although i don't know that that's necessarily bad although i don't know maybe forget how do, it. How do we do it differently in team versus individual well so like in in, in team you the, the points that you get are based on the scores that get the zero gets dropped and then if you're in second place you drop a one and then there's you know minimums that you're going to get for getting in either first, second, or third, that kind of thing. So it's a it's a form of bucketizing, not purely, but I mean it's it's you are team scores lose information, maybe not full information, but they do lo- lose a certain amount of information. They lose more than individuals, especially because um, the floor is one. Yeah, yeah. But the other than that, there's really only a a one point adjustment, right? Sure, when, sure. Which is probably less than 10% of the component of the score normally. 
Sure. Fair enough. Fair enough. But putting that aside, let's talk, let's talk about individuals. I don't, I wouldn't call it necessarily bucketizing at the individual level, but I would call it a filter. So like an electrical circuit of which I've been studying a lot lately, um, ask me why, but uh, later, but, uh, the, there's a, you know, let's say there's a frequency wave and we're putting in a, a filter at the top to say, you cannot earn more than 90, right? There, uh, uh, you can earn anywhere up to 90, but once you hit 90, you're done. Uh, and even if you have the opportunity to, you know, fully demonstrate your, your capability of answering more precisely than that 90, that that's just off the table, right? Um, now, ultimately what ends up happening is let's say, you know, the Scott Peterson quizzer is, let's say every quizzer is kind of like a sine wave of some kind, right? Um, the Scott Peterson sine wave is at a higher, uh, what do you call it? it? It's basically bumped higher than the Griffin sine wave, right? But let's say we both have a sine wave. Your sine wave is going to get clipped at the upper end because of that filter. And so ultimately, as anybody's sine wave progresses upward toward that filter, they w their average will actually be compressed. And so ultimately, what you see at the highest levels of competition is not a reflection of how good the quizzer is, but how few mistakes they make, which granted is a one form of how good that quizzer prepared, but it's not the full story. That's fascinating because it's true but it's also that was my only vocabulary when i was um a junior was how can i maximize my chances of getting a 90 which really were just minimize my chances of making an error and when all of the top 10 or 15 quizzers talked during the meet on how each of us were doing we just asked how many errors have you made because it was assumed that everyone quizzed out 100 percent of the time right um, which clearly shows that for a significant number of quizzers, um, we had a sig like a heavy ceiling because we were all quizzing out a hundred percent of the time or, you know, close to it. Um, which is definitely something that the new system is, well, you could still have quizzers quizzing out with the same frequency, but it, there's going to be a different, that's not going to be, um, the unified measure that it is today. Right, exactly. So like the best you can do is perfect um, in A2. In A3, there isn't necessarily going to be perfect, right? So you're it basically you you're asymptotically approaching perfection, never quite getting there. Thus, every additional amount of investment causes you to get a slightly and ever, ever more slightly increase to your reward, but there is some measured reward there. So it's very similar to like, well, you know, every other sport. Um, so like, I can only really speak to cycling because cycling was really, well, I, I guess I did more than cycling. I did um, cross country and, and track and so forth, but really cycling was really the only sport that I really got into, um, physical sport that I really got into. Um, we can have the argument of whether chess is a sport, but in cycling, the initial investment that you make in training, you see massive gains. Like you go from, you know, averaging 15 miles an hour to 20 miles an hour, you know, or, or something like that. Like, like, and I'm, I'm just making stats up out of the top of my head. But the idea is that the, the, a certain amount of base level training 
gets you huge returns for your investment. But then as you get better and better and better, the additional levels of investment, you might 10x your investment and then 10x it again. And you might only see a, you know, a 10th of a percent of performance improvement, but everyone else is, is, is engaged in that as well. So at the higher levels of competition in cycling, you are investing tremendous amounts and you're only seeing a very small reward that comes out of it, but those rewards exist and they're replicatable and they're predictable, right? And so it's not that like, it's not actually disincentivizing at those upper levels. It's actually incentivizing to get these smaller and smaller rewards because ultimately you're honing in on what is what is what is a way I can squeeze out just another point here, another advantage here, um, that sort of stuff, where uh, it starts to get really fascinating and exciting, and there's never an end point, right? There's never a, well, I have trained enough, <laughs> right? There's always the incentive to try just a little bit more, to gain just a little bit of an advantage uh, over your competition. Now, tell me if you agree with this statement. This this new system where there are easier pathways to get a small number of points with very little preparation. I, you know, for, for example, using an open book. Um, but there's also the expanded upper bound where you can ratchet up a question's difficulty or number of aspects and score much higher um, than our current system. That will increase incentives to study at the very, very high end and at the low end, but probably not touch the whole middle but at the end of the day it would be either an increase or a main, main maintenance of the incentive status quo it's hard to pre i i don't think so i think actually it, it because of the strategic mechanisms within the system i think it actually incentivizes everyone at every level but the greatest degree relative to current will be felt on the extremes, right? So like, I think, I think people in the middle will have, call it, I don't know, I'm just making stuff up here, but let's say people in the middle will have a 2x incentive to, to study more. I think people on the upper end will have like a 10x and people at the lower end will have like a 5x or something like that. Like, I, I think, I think everybody is incentivized more, but the extremes have more opportunity because the way a two currently operates, you have, you're required to invest the quantum leap at the low end and you are prevented from any reward at the upper end. I'm having a thought, which is completely anecdotal, but how much would you agree that the very upper end of quizzer is very incentivized by some amount of competition doing better than others and so when given a higher ceiling will absolutely tap into them whereas yeah. go ahead well uh, i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you but but uh, since i did i think it's highly dependent on the quizzer right um and different quizzers have as highly different motivations i mean do you think that there are, i mean how common do you think what i just said is among your top five percent it's or three three percent. Yeah, I think it's it, it's very probable. Um, so okay. you, I don't know, eighty ninety percent common in a scientific study I just made up in my head. And now I'm thinking about kind of that next tier. Um, so quizzers say fifteen through thirty, say 
15 through 35 or percentage wise i don't know probably roughly the same percentage right 15 per- the 85th percentile down to the 60th or 65th percentile what do you think is kind of the incentive profile of those quizzers because it's it's not like some amount of like excellence or maximization right um i'm wondering if the incentives are largely focused around things like great west where um it's kind of like um up to that resistance level is where the incentive lies and so the actual scoring of the thing almost doesn't matter to a degree again everybody's different right but i think for sure for sure right but like generally speaking you have these certain incentives like great west is a fantastic incentive but it is a it's a filtration right it's it's a it, there's a, a certain cutoff it's it's totally graded on the bell curve right we're going to take the top you know x number of quizzers regardless of what any of what anybody scores right so in that universe like some if if somebody is highly incentivized by the draw of great west which you know is totally reasonable because great west is totally cool for a number of reasons they're going to if they're in that sort of uh second tier that you were talking about 85 to 65 percent or whatever whatever you said they're incentivized to try to boost themselves up a little bit higher now granted they want to boost themselves high enough where they can get into that cutoff and maybe they slow down their investment because they're not incentivized to do more but they're certainly going to be always grappling to get high enough to gain the reward that that is part of that filtration right but there are other rewards as well so for example you know when i was in in cycling if i if i uh cycled in a race and one year i scored uh seventh uh out of a field of let's say 100 cyclists or something like that i would be hyper motivated to be like well the next year i want to score better than that like i want to score fifth or something like that right and 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 if i if i if i was in a race of 100 uh cyclists and they were it was at a different competitional level and i scored 50 my the next year i'd be like well i want to score better than 50 i want to score like a 45 or a 42 or something like that right so like i think there is a certain level of incentive to just do better than what you did before and that's part of that incentive and part of it is also just the juice right the the idea of like there is a certain level of in a single question or query being able to get the jump get the trigger be able to go up there and respond and get the the be counted correct there's a certain excitement a certain um dopamine hit that comes from that success right uh, having more of those successes in itself is incentivizing at the very micro level, independent of these sort of macro level incentives. But, it, but that being said, I think the macro level incentives are very valuable. It's so interesting to think about in broad strokes, what can be incentive. Yeah. Well, and like I said, quizzers, every quizzer is going to be a little bit different. There's definitely themes that, uh, that reoccur across a broad, you know, number of, of quizzers. Right. But I, uh, I really don't want to put all of the quizzers into a single bucket and say, well, all quizzers think this particular way. Cause clearly that's not, that's not the case. Some quizzers are highly motivated by, I just 
want to do as well as I possibly can wherever I was before. I want to do better than my personal best before, you know, and there, there are quizzers who are not motivated by that at all. There are some quizzers who are like, I want to, I want my competition to do well and I want to do better than them because I want to destroy them in Christian love. Right. And so there's, there's, there's that sort of incentive where it's like, yes, I love my fellow quizzers, but I want to defeat them in battle. Um, and there's a certain motivation there as well, right? So all of these things kind of come together into this soup of motivations for for individuals. Sure, sure. I mean, but while everyone's different, you have to like paint in broad themes when you're designing, right? Like an incentive structure of competition oh absolutely um but then you could also have multiple ways to incentivize like 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 that's exactly what we do we reward people based on scores um in the moment we reward them based on the meat placement we also reward them with things like um, ioc or great west or other sorts of things and when we were large enough we rewarded with invitations to district championships do you think there's this is probably too broad of a question to be meaningfully answered by you but do you think there's useful terminology around differing kinds of incentives i'm thinking like just some examples there was a quizzer who was a phenomenal internationals quizzer but then became an upperclassman and just had less time to give to bible quizzing and because of that was not interested in being um a tier below of an internationals quizzer and then just became a very middling quizzer Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's the motivation was to be extremely excellent. And if they couldn't, there was no motivation to be as excellent as they could. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Or take me when I started, I would have loved to grind everyone into the ground, but I didn't have any like contextual knowledge about how good I was or how good I could be or what what things I could do to become better. And so that's why I was very happy to self set a goal of two questions, a quiz, because it just felt attainable and a little bit motivating to me, but there was likely a much better way to coach me to, to maximize the, um, is the word latent like inside of you, but not exposed yet. Yeah. Okay. The latent, uh, um, like motivation and incentive and competitive drive, um, much quicker. And I just don't know if there's, there's ways to like talk about these different kinds of incentives. So, you know, some people might want to, try to optimize within a fixed amount of time studying. Whereas for other people, as they get some amount of success, they are now willing to spend more time studying. Yeah. Well, I mean, theoretically, I suspect there are labels for these sorts of things. Neither of us are sports psychologists, so we, we're, we're not indoctrinated in the lexicon of the, uh, of the expert here. But I think we're dancing around the same concepts that come up in that field. Yeah, because I think it's just, it's really helpful to know if you're a coach, right? You probably, and I'm sure coaches do know whether someone just needs an an influx of confidence and they will willingly increase the amount of time that they spend. Or maybe some people are going to put in a fixed amount of time, but are just doing it extremely inefficiently, right? right? That they can be helped with. Um, and those are much, much different endeavors for a coach to undertake. Right. All right. Well, um, 
let's uh, I'm gonna let's skip the material stuff for now. I I really want to dig into this idea that you were talking about um, just before we were started recording, and and you know forgive my terrible way of summarizing what we were talking about here. But when designing a new thing, how wide or narrow uh, should we build the appeal of the new thing? Can you dig into like what you were talking about there? Describe it a little bit, and let's explore explore the idea. Yeah, I will try. I'm definitely gonna talk about things that I'm no expert in. But we'll start with a hopefully useful analogy, and and that's I am a software developer, and if I was selling my services, it would be really, really bad for me to say I am a software developer Um, because that's just not enough. It's too broad, um, and it's going to be hard for me to get clients. Where if I said I develop Android applications for the Android TV system and with a focus on um, responsive design, or something. Well, if that's what you want, you know you want me, um, and not someone else saying I do software development. Um, and so, in that way, me becoming narrow could actually be a good business decision because it, I'm able to very clearly describe why you would want my services. And so, thinking about Bible quizzing, if we are selling Bible quizzing, um, and you know, there are lots of hurdles because it's really hard to describe because there's not really anything like it. It's not really like a sport, but it's not really like other sorts of knowledge games, right? It's not really like Jeopardy. Um, and so I'm interested in your thoughts where you're, tr- you know, for example, you're trying to provide additional, like widen the incentive, funnel's not the right word, but the incentive range and breadth like make the lower end lower and the higher end higher. And I'm wondering if, like, how do we, when we're designing any endeavor that we want people to voluntarily join and be a part of, um, how do we know if it's if it's good to have broad appeal or if it's good to really, really focus on a narrow appeal? I don't know if you get more devoted people or uh, it probably depends what, what it is that you're wanting wanting to do. But I think it's a really interesting question because, you know, as you and I both talked about, if hypothetically um, more people would join Bible quizzing if we had no sort of ringing in system and it was only a quoting B and I don't know what other fundamental changes there would be. um, Well, at that point, it's not really what we want it to be. And so um, a greater amount of participation is not a win in that case, right? (laughs) Um, or if we said it's just a uh, a candy eating convention, um, you might increase participation, but it, that's not that wouldn't be the point of it. Yeah, I mean, well, that sort of thing. Going back to your first, obviously the candy thing. Obviously, I agree with you. But going back to your your just the prior example, if it was the case that we could, you know, hack and slash quizzing such that it wasn't quizzing anymore, and actually turn it into a quotathon, you know, Bible bowl quotathon kind of thing. Um, and as a result of doing that, we dramatically increased or even forget dramatically as a result of doing that, we were, we knew that by doing that, we were optimizing for participation and optimizing for missional outcome being the most number of people memorizing the most number of verses. I think we would do it right now. I think you and I would be bored to tears in in a in a system like that. But ultimately, I think we would still do it because the mission 
would be fulfilled, which is optimizing for the most number of people memorizing the most number of verses. But I would argue that we we wouldn't do it not because we would be bored to tears, but because we would be bored to tears and others would as well, it would actually be non-optimal for missional outcomes, right? So in other words, I think we get to the same destination, but we get there via different a different pathway, a different logical pathway, right? Like ultimately, I think we want to find a system that optimizes for the mission. And I think not deriving something so broad as a quotathon actually gets us to an optimal outcome, right? But at the same time, I think an optimal outcome is making the barrier to entry as low as possible, as close to zero, if not zero as possible, and making it very, very easy for, you know, very, very, very broadly invitational, but then not keeping it that way, allowing the the upper ends of the competition to become far more interesting. So like it's 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 both a balance and not a balance at the same time. Um, how's that for being, you know, Zen? Yeah, and I like the design where if there's going to be open book questions, um, the point value has to be very, very low. Um, and I think that's perfect because no one wants a participation trophy, right? Right. Um, but it wouldn't be that. It would be, you know, an attempt to award points requisite to, like, the ability um, or the you know, the execution on memorized material, which would be very low in that, in that case. Um, and so you would be scoring the, you know, the requisite number of points. Um, and I, and it would also hit the incentives where, you know, you get some of that feedback loop of winning a jump, answering a question, getting it correct, getting points. Right. Um, and so I think it kind of, it hits on all, all points there. Right. And so, I mean, yeah, you're, you're increasing, well, I don't know if you're increasing the appeal necessarily. You might be. Um, I think you're definitely creating better incentives for every level of current preparedness. Yeah, and appeal is a, an interesting word because we've got multiple different levels of, well, not levels, uh, contexts of what appeal means, right? So there's the appeal of quizzing for people who are engaged in quizzing. And there's an appeal for people at the upper levels, the mid middle levels, and at the junior levels who are in that level of engagement. But there's also appeal of quizzing outside of quizzingdom, right? And I think part of the struggle, challenge, opportunity of the third age of quizzing is to say, we need to be less insular. We need to actually develop an appeal of quizzing outside the bounds of quizzing them. We actually have to make quizzing appealing to the average uh, quizzing potential person who is not currently involved in quizzing. Uh, we need to appeal to uh, parents. We need to appeal to pastors and laity and, and uh, youth and all sorts of folks. Uh, we need to lay out why getting involved in quizzing at any level, whether it's quizzer, coach, official, uh, whether it's rookie quizzer, junior quizzer, mid-tier uh, quizzer, advanced uh, quizzer, there's value gained at every level and in, in every particular role. And it's value that's not just individual, but corporate and also 
cultural and value that that gets seen back within the local church and within the local community as well right so i i was talking to i forget who i was talking to but um you know just recently the, the last couple of weeks uh, was ta- i was talking about like you know pastors who are lamenting over the fact that they don't have a congregation that is by and large engaged in the mission of that particular church right so let's say a church is very uh, let's say missional focused for outcomes uh, uh, for their local community. Let's say they're they're evangelizing to, and well not evangelizing they're um, they're ministering to homeless or they are uh, serving their community in you know any number of various different ways. And they've got a church of let's say 200 people, but it's always the same 20 people who show up to every sort of outreach event. And the pastor's lamenting like, yeah, I've got my 20 go tos. But beyond that, like I can't get the other, you know, 180 people to show up to anything or to participate in anything. Uh, they're just kind of pew warmers, and that's fine, I guess, for Sunday. But how do I get more engagement? How do I get people to take their faith more seriously and invest in? their communities or whatever it happens to be, whatever the missional calling of that church happens to be for, in that particular moment. And I'm talking to these pastors and I'm saying, okay, well, but it, quizzing can help you get that spark, right? So if somebody is memorizing scripture, it's very difficult for like when they're doing that on mass, it's very difficult to then say, okay, don't do anything with that knowledge. <laughs> like, like pack that knowledge away, have it be illuminated by the Holy Spirit and then don't act on it right? Um, what I find interesting is that when you memorize scripture, it's illuminated by the Holy Spirit and it, it inevitably leads toward in higher levels of engagement. And so, you know, from a, you know, speaking to pastors, if you're lamenting a congregation that's not engaged, get them into quizzing because now it's, you're, you're talking about a long roadmap here. This is not an overnight change. It takes years but ultimately you will have a far more engaged congregation because you'll have a far more biblically literate uh, congregation that self-incentivizes for some very clever definition of self via quizzing to gain that sort of zero zero origin point to minimum uh, where they start seeing the returns of the investment of of memorizing and off to the races you go yeah and then there's just the larger that a program is, there's so many benefits. Yeah, right. Just, I mean, the the only one that's not is probably like needing larger venue and things like billeting and housing being more difficult if you have an overnight. Yeah. But other than that, um, everything else kind of gets easier. Well, and even even in those regards, we have easy hacks that we can pull from, you know, the 80s and 90s that we can deploy immediately uh, with very little effort, right? So, you know, a hack that P&W did from the 90s is we had regional meets instead of uh, it, replacing some of our larger district meets, right? So, uh, you know, instead of having every meet be a district meet, you would have some meets be regional where the, the district would divide up into three regions. And thus it was able to have smaller churches be able to host uh, those meets because they're not everybody was necessarily involved. And then, of course, you would come together for the full district meets at some of the larger churches that would that were able to sustain uh, everybody. And th- so we've got we've got capabilities 
to be able to handle uh, some of the problems of scale, uh, the challenges of scale, right? But there are so many opportunities from scale that just dwarf um, the the challenges that uh, you know it gets me very excited thinking about the you know you know what what could, what could lie ahead, right? And I think one of the biggest advantages when you do have scale is better filtering of current ability. Um, I think it's nice to have some notion of prelims so that you don't just segment the best with the best and the um, least prepared with the least prepared like a hundred percent of the time. Right. I think it's kind of good to have to keep having everyone have a sense of the range of the landscape. Um, but the more time that any like anyone of any preparedness level can spend with people of a similar preparedness level, um, I think is better for their like growing incentive. Um, and that's, you just have more to work with and more like, um, quizzers to filter to like quizzers, um, with greater scale. It's reminded me kind of, of, this is going to be a terrible story now. Cause I can't remember the term, but it was something like the development or ability Valley, which is the difference in what someone can do on their own and the difference in what they can do with a little help from a coach or a teacher. But it kind of reminds me of the similar theory of, not theory, reality. Um, you learn best when you're pushed some amount beyond your current ability. Right. Not way beyond, not below, not exactly at, but somewhat beyond. Um, and that's you know a scenario where I can compete against other um, similar com- competition-level quizzers um, means that the jump speeds are right in my wheelhouse, but I'm going, some people are going to beat me. Some people are, I'm going to beat some people. Um, and it, you get much, much better feedback than, oh, all the best quizzers quizzed out on the 40 point question. And I got questions at the end of the quiz when they were out where it's like, sure, I got points and that's nice, but I know it's not the same. Right. <laughs> Um, versus, Hey, we're all pretty similar. And I quizzed out like, um, it really isn't important that the top X percent of quizzers weren't in this quiz, um, because we all have some similar ability and I was able to excel and that would give someone the incentive, uh, most likely to add in a little more effort or time or efficiency to their study, and then hopefully advance into a different, um, competitive tier if that's what they want. Yeah. So, I mean, think about baseball, right? If your goal is to maximize, uh, involvement in baseball, to try to get more people to play baseball, to enjoy baseball, you don't design a tournament where you have a bunch of games. Uh, I mean, for trying to translate quizzing into baseball and vice versa, but you don't design a competition where, uh, a little league team is playing the Yankees, right? Um, like, like as a norm, I mean, if you have to do that to try to initially separate, you know, teams into tiers or something like that, then sure, go ahead. But the idea is, yeah, you want the Yankees and the Red Sox to play each other and you want, you know, um, the fighting frogs and the unicorns to play each other, right? Uh, because they're going to get more out of the system that way. It's like playing a video game. If I'm, I don't play really i just don't play video games anymore and i did when i was younger but i just i don't i don't care anymore but you know when let's say you're playing a video game for the first time and you go on hardcore expert super difficult level 
the game isn't fun, right? Because you're like, you're constantly dying or getting, you know, last place or whatever it happens to be. You start off on basic and then you go intermediate, then you go advanced as your skills progress. And a good game design, if it doesn't have those kind of levels, starts you at very, you know, fairly easy. Uh, you can, you, and as you accomplish things, the game gets harder and harder, you know, as you progress through to keep you interested and engaged there. I'm, I'm also, I'm also remembering like when I was taught how to, uh, be a pilot, right? So my first, uh, certified flight instructor, my first instructor was very much the, I'm just going to dump everything on you. Right. So we would start with some basics and here you go, let's take off. And now you're doing this. And then all of a sudden I would find myself, backed into a corner, you know, intellectually with like, okay, great. You're switching from this airspace to this airspace. You have to change this configuration for your aircraft. You have to make a radio call to this agent agency, to this other tower. Uh, you have to, you know, going through this whole list of various different things, I would get saturated and be like, wait a minute. I, I can't, I can't learn all of this simultaneously. Um, it was not a good experience for me. I then moved to a different instructor who was much more like, okay, let's do, let's learn this one thing now, <laughs> right? Okay. Now that you know that now let's add this one new thing onto this list. And so, you know, every time we flew, it was both fun. It was engaging. It was not easy. It was difficult, but it was like, it was totally, uh, achievable. Every time I went out to go fly, I knew that whatever we were seeking to do was at least theoretically achievable. Uh, there were a couple of times where I was like, nah, I didn't actually achieve the outcome of that lesson. So we tried again, another lesson, but there, all of the outcomes were reasonably achievable within that particular progression. And so you can learn a whole lot faster that way. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Cool. Well, and on that bombshell, we should probably wrap things up. I want to remind everybody that if you heard anything that you disagree with, you get front of line privileges, but we would like to hear from everyone. Uh, feel free to email us at, and you are encouraged to email us, in fact, at iq at cbqz.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing, and you can chat with us in kind of almost near real time on the Inside Quizzing uh, Slack channel. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening and thank you, Scott. Thank you, Griffin, and thanks to our listeners. 